0: Welcome to the Working with India podcast, conversations to help cross cultural managers deepen their understanding of India, produced by learningindia.in. Today's episode features Robert Stevens. Robert went straight from architectural school in the US to working with a firm in Mumbai nearly eight years ago. I'm very excited to have Robert on the show because he's an outsider who understands the pulse of modern India. In this episode, Robert and I talk about how he approaches his work as an architect, the importance of good documented communication, and when it's okay to be direct with your Indian teammates. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, welcome to the Working With India podcast. Today we have a very special guest, Robert Stevens. Robert is honestly one of the most interesting people that I've I've ever met. I'm really excited to have him on the show today, to hear from him with all of his experience he has. He's the kind of guy that always is looking to see beyond the surface and expose the good going on both around the world and in his own backyard. So I'm I'm really excited for what he has to share today. Uh Robert, how are you today? Very good. Thank you, Neil. Thank yeah. you. Very excited. Thanks for joining us on the show. We're very excited to have you. Now Robert, you have a, what I would call a very non-traditional story about how you got started working in India. You you didn't come from a multinational where they they came and gave you some three-year assignments. Um you didn't come and try to start up your own business. So why don't you just give listeners an overview of of where you started off and how you got to where you are now professionally? Sure.
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I was studying at Virginia Tech, uh, doing my bachelor's of architecture degree. It's a five year course. Uh, around the second year into my studies, I started meeting um, a lot of a lot of students from Bombay. Um, there's of course a very large Indian student population at Virginia Tech, but for some reason, uh, the years I was there, the architecture. A segment of that group was largely from Bombay. So I started making a lot of friends um, and just really fantastic friendships uh, that blossomed over many years. And during my fourth year of school, uh, I had two friends who said, you know, why don't you come visit us in Bombay? Uh, we have two weeks break during Christmas. So I said, great, let's go. Uh, so we went, that was in 2000, 2005, um, and I just, I fell in love with the city. Is is some find that especially those from Bombay sometimes find that a bit of an odd uh, (laughs) uh, thing. Yeah, (laughs) that's what that's what happened.
0: I get that Um, a lot about Chennai too. People like why (laughs) Why do you live there? (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, So that was it. Was a really amazing experience. Um, I went back to school for to finish my fourth year, and I started searching for architecture firms based in Bombay. Uh, I searched and searched, didn't find anything. And uh, kind of came to a point where I'd given up uh, the thought of, of working in Bombay. And during the beginning of my fifth year, my last year of school, I was doing research for my thesis. And I discovered an article written by uh, the man who's now what I would call my boss, even though that's not quite the right word. It's hmm. much more of a, a brother, a colleague. Um, and it was about architecture and identity. Uh, exactly what I was looking for. So read the article and at the bottom it said he runs a small design studio in Bombay. I said, you know, <laughs> where is this where is this guy been? I've been searching. I went to the website and I said, this is, this is where I'm going to work. Uh, I immediately wrote to him and this was in 2006. It was before uh-huh. the U.S. economy crashed and everyone started looking outside. So he said, I wrote to him, he said, you know, this is this is rather odd. Um, <laughs> um, he said, you've been to Bombay and, and you like it? He said, yes, very much. That's where I want to work and I want to work with you. And he said, okay, uh, let's try it. So um, we kind of started then and uh, I came to Bombay in 2007, June 2007. And I've been here since.
0: And he gave you a... Very large fat contract to come over and start working. <laughs> not quite. Yeah. Not quite. It was really
1: nice actually because I was given no preferential treatment. Uh, and I actually really liked that. It was good not only for me, it was good for my colleagues uh, because we were just, we were all in the same boat in a sense. Um, the Indian government gave us a little bit of hassle with that, but they eventually agreed. Um, they, for some reason, think that foreign people. Inherently deserve more than Indians. <laughs> um, that's what they're at that time. That's what their regulations seem to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were able to work through that uh, in a legal way, which was good and honest way. Um, and yeah, and uh, we worked and, and worked together. And seven and a half years later, it's still working really well. So yeah, that's it.
0: Great, great. That's a, that's a great overall story. I know there's a lot of pieces in the in the middle of that. Yeah. Now, yeah. now, mostly, you know, being an architectural space is something new for a lot of people when they think about India. You know, you think about yes. IT stuff going on. You think about big um, accounting firms that have set up shop here. Automotive things. What's yes. what's that like? In kind of a that's that um, yeah that design element, the architectural world. What's it like in India? Yeah, it's um it's an
1: extremely like just it's one of the most interesting and most underrated um, professions. Uh, and arts in India, it has it has a tradition that is thousands of years old. Um, unfortunately, in the last couple of hundred years, I would say uh, I I don't want to blame it on colonialization, but it seems like ever since outside influence started kind of encroaching on India, this kind of clarity of architecture and design and how to think about living and working spaces has been kind of corrupted mm-hmm. um, and aspirations have gone a bit haywire um, uh, but it's just it's it's an extremely sensical it, in terms of the background of architecture in India it's incredibly sensical it's incredibly contextual uh, highly relevant highly sustainable uh, and highly affordable um, all of these these because it was it was a natural expression of where people lived and how they lived and how they worked mm-hmm. um, so it's uh, uh, not to jump ahead of ourselves, but but I think a lot of really good firms working today recognize that, um, and they bring locally appropriate design solutions to contemporary workspaces, contemporary uh, residences. Um, that's the that's kind of the the trend, as opposed to the large MNCs who are doing uh, design work that could be located in Delhi and Bombay or equally in Tokyo, London, um, you know, they wouldn't need to change design to put buildings in different places because it's kind of a one, one solution for many problems.
0: Yeah. So now just knowing your heart and all this, do you do you find yourself kind of struggling even with the pushback from, from other, you know, partners you're working with, or even people in your own firm to say like, no, we need to do it more of a Indian style, or try to take away some yeah. of that Western influence. No, that's the that's
1: the really dream part about uh, about my job. It's mm-hmm. we're all we're all for the most basically for the most part on the same page. Mm. Um, everyone has this similar vision. Um, that's it's highly contemporary, but at the same time, it's highly local. Mm. Um, without without being afraid to use you know kind of new materials or or new things, it's not that, that we're against that in any way. Um, but yeah, it's really like, honestly, I, I look forward to it. I, I love going to work every day because there's no, there's no pushback within our own studio um, or for that matter with our clients. Uh, we're really, uh, it's, it's quite a, an incredible situation we have with the, the quality of clients we have as well as the quality of colleagues that I, I have the chance to work with.
0: It's great. Wow. Now, this is your, your first job out of college, right? Yes, that's right. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about, you know, how you've adapted your work style. But I, I realize that, you know, there's not much adaptation if you didn't do anything before. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, every time you, you get in these situations, you realize, okay, things may be a little bit different here than they are in other places. So why don't yes. you give a few examples of, of how you have, you know, adapted your own work style to be in India?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, actually, the more I think about it, it's it's less of adaptation, which I mean, you kind of mentioned. Um, and it's more of picking up new skills mm-hmm. that weren't as valued, um, uh, perhaps in the West, or in, at least in, in my schooling background. Um, you know, in, in school, we focus and I, I think most architecture schools are similar to this. We focus on design, uh, we spend 90% of our lives in design studio making drawings making presentations um it's a lot of fun and then you start working and things are different you do drawings you do a lot of drawings but if that's all you do you'll you'll never have a successful uh, practice and you know early on my first year you know my boss kept pushing me to do letters, do this letter, send this letter to this person, write this letter, um, constantly writing. And I used to think to myself, you know, why in the world are we sending so many letters? Uh, we should, Shouldn't we be focusing on more design? And I realized, uh, you know, India is a complicated place. Many parts in the world are. Projects often span years um, as opposed to semesters or weeks or months. They span years. And written letters, things that are written down, become the history of the project. Um, they document which decisions were taken when, by whom they were taken. Um, and it becomes this, this, this kind of database that it's impossible to, to maintain either through good intentions or through, uh, through verbal communication. Um, and yeah, I think that was kind of the biggest learning element for me. It's, it's, it's something I love doing now I love writing letters as odd as it may sound um, but it, it's become very very important and uh, it was a surprise because never never in uh, in school did someone mention you know okay let's let's practice writing letters today or why would you write a letter what should the tone be how do you address someone that's in government versus a private client um, you know these are all things and if you for example if you give the wrong label for someone in government that can that can be a huge setback because Mm -hmm. someone will be offended and then they won't respond to your calls and and uh and written letters or emails um so all of these things if you mark cc to the wrong person to a junior and you're writing to a senior person you know all of these can be kind of fatal flaws in a project that uh you have to learn how to navigate this language um and and yeah that was the biggest surprise and something i'm still learning but uh it's 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 a nice kind of challenge.
0: yeah, wow. Um, typically, when we talk about documentation, like you said, you know I, I find a lot of people that struggle with thinking that you know Indians don't document things. It's just kind of left out mm-hmm. there. Um, but, mm-hmm. but this is an interesting insight you're giving that's you know of these letters, which you're talking about both digital and print letters? Both,
1: both, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, typically when, you know, when we write to a government organization, the written letter is critical because it sits in a file, that file sits somewhere for many years, and someday it will come back to life. Uh, whereas digital letters, um, they're, they're good with private clients with government, we find they're less effective. Mm. Um, so that's the, the thing. And you know, it's, it's you're kind of in some ways, right? Um, correct? A lot of Not a lot. Some of our clients don't document things. And that's why we do. Hmm. Because it's a valuable uh, issue for any project for any relationship. um, That's that's in a professional context. It's important. And yeah, it's it's we kind of become the um, the, we kind of keep things on a track in a project because it can only hurt the project later if there's vagueness or lack of clarity uh, of what's happening. So we we take we do this not necessarily because there's a huge precedent for it, but mm-hmm. because we see there's a huge value yeah. in doing so. Wow,
0: mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah. Now I want to ask a question. that's kind of been burning on my mind. That yep. if you if you offend somebody, and oftentimes mm-hmm. it's when you offend somebody, you, yes, you use the wrong title, you you do one of these uh, mistakes you mentioned. Mm how would you go about trying to fix that? Is that kind of once that's done, the relationship's mm-hmm. over forever or is mm-hmm. there, are there some things you can do to, to patch that up?
1: Mm. Yeah. I, You know, it's interesting when it's, it's always, there's, there's no one answer. Uh, whenever we make mistakes or we do something wrong, um, we have a discussion internally. How do we solve this? What's the best way? And, you know, oftentimes this is the value of having a team working with you. So, If if a junior, someone under me, um, which actually I don't like that word, someone, a colleague working with me um, makes a mistake, from the client's perspective, in terms of the hierarchy realm, I'm above that person. So if I write to the client and say, you know, I'm very sorry, so-and-so made a mistake, or I I verbally say this to them, um, you know, so-and-so made a mistake, uh, please forgive us, it was unintentional, and um, here's how we're solving X, Y, or Z, or whatever the, the problem was, um, that tends to tie things over. And, and it's, it's, it's helpful because when there's a recognition from a senior person within the office that uh, this mistake happened, it's been identified, it's being rectified, that generally solves uh, things. But it involves this, this kind of teamwork where I'm willing to support and, and not justify, but stand with my colleague, recognize what went wrong, um, and say, we'll solve this together.
0: Great! Wow. Um, let's talk a little bit more about communication. Um, yeah. I know that you know all over the world in the business you know world it's important, but specifically in India, you yes. Deal with a lot of specific things. So tell me about how your communication style has changed or how, new skills you picked up, as you said. Yeah,
1: yeah, um, yeah. It's it's by far the most important um, skill I think of of uh, anyone working in any any country, as you said. Um, you know, we, we often have people who are extremely talented in terms of their design skills or their computer skills, and consistently, if they lack the ability to communicate, their role will be limited, um, not only in our office, but in any, uh, professional context. So, you know, communication, it's, uh, gosh, I don't, I, I kind of struggle, where to start? Right. Um, it's many. It's many, many layered. It's verbal. It's written. Um, it's it's just being able to have a, a daily dialogue with people you're interacting with to keep them updated. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I don't know. Can you give well, me something else? <laughs>
0: yeah, let's zero <laughs> in sorry. on just like this element yeah. of, of direct versus indirect. It's a topic okay. I, I write yeah, about yeah. a lot on the site and yes. about how you know it's important to learn about how to communicate indirectly. Um, But it's also important if you're in a oftentimes leadership position to be able to communicate more directly than you maybe would have before. So there's this tension between understanding indirect communication, Mm. sometimes practicing it, sometimes being more direct. So where do you you find yourself on that spectrum?
1: Yeah. So on that spectrum, I naturally and generally as a preference tend on the very direct uh, (laughs) side of it, which it often causes a certain level of conflict. Um, and that uh, that that's also a situation where sometimes I make mistakes because it's maybe not so appropriate to be direct, but I tend to. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think the advantage of direct communication is you immediately address issues so things don't kind of just uh, sit and stagnate for long periods of time, which cause other problems. Um, um, direct communication it helps I find it helps with my colleagues uh, know exactly or or any other any other person we are engaged with. Um, they they know exactly what the issue is. Mm-hmm. Um, they may disagree with how I'm saying it or when I'm saying it, but uh, at least the issue that is at hand is being addressed. And I find that direct communication is less kind of uh, conflict creating when, it's, it's focused on the problem and not the person. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, there are times when, when uh, the person is, is creating the problem, but more, much more often it's, it's a kind of an object or a drawing or a challenge that we're facing that is the heart of the issue. So I find focusing on that, um, and and being very direct in that is the problem and not the person's work ethic or the work the person's doing within that, um, mm-hmm. that helps um, but it's it's definitely, it, it creates conflict mm-hmm. um, which I think is healthy uh, uh, I, I kind of speak on behalf of my boss who I often learn a lot from uh-huh. and he seems to think it's healthy as well mm-hmm. that if there's no conflict, that means you'll have many problems kind of sitting under the surface. <laughs> Someday they will explode. Yeah. Uh, and then it's it's a disaster. It, it's not solvable. And we, we'd much rather have this face-to-face conflict that's honest, um, that's not malicious, mm-hmm. uh, that's problem-centric. And we deal with things like that. So, yeah, it's it's not always easy but it's valuable and uh, it it helps the team long term so people understand kind of what's what are the issues they're facing uh, with with their particular work at hand
0: now how important do you feel like establishing a good relationship is in terms of being able to be direct Um, in terms (laughs) of like do you feel like you could just land in as a total foreigner no one knows who you are and you yeah. start being very direct with people versus someone like you, who's you know you've been there for seven and a half years. They yeah. they know your heart. They know kind of the the attitude you take with that. How much does that relationship play in your ability to be direct with people and still sure. yeah make progress?
1: Yeah. So when I first came, um, this is this is kind of where my mistake started. Mm. When I first came, I was still direct. <laughs> so here's this guy who's come from the U.S. three months ago, six months ago, and he's he's. Pointing out problems. Who is this guy? He's nonsense. Um, you know, I think some of my colleagues probably thought, you know, he's anyways going to be gone in a year, so just you know, let it be. Um, so that was a that was a problem too early on. I was very direct. Um, my boss appreciated because he knows it's valuable. But from a, in a society that that sees freshers, newcomers as not having such a valuable voice. Uh, that was that was a problem hmm. um, now seven and a half years later if we hire someone the next day they're in office I can be direct with them hmm. uh, because I am you know I am in a leadership position um, it's it's kind of expected in some ways um, that I'm going to to highlight problems um, the way I do it is very direct and that's maybe not as expected but uh, but people they they learn and they come to expect it in a way so it's much easier now than it was then still not easy but it's easier (laughs) yeah nice yeah
0: now in terms of okay you're in a leadership position uh you're in a an Indian office what are some of the recurring challenges that you face when you're working in India Uh, what are some of the the things that continually come up to the surface do you have to find yourself managing around
1: Mm -hmm. yeah I think um you know one of the we have a, a a relatively high attrition rate. Um, so people generally stay with us for two or three years, which uh, it's still a lot of time, but it's 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 a challenge, you know, because you constantly have new people coming. Um, and I've noticed trends that it's 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 quite consistent. Um, new colleagues are happy solving problems they are given to solve. Mm-hmm. They really struggle to anticipate problems and solve those. Mm. And We've we, we are always pushing pushing people working with us, even if it's their their first week in office, um, to learn to anticipate the problems, um, because that's what adds value to any organization. You know, a lot of people are good at solving them. So when their boss says, "Okay, here's the problem, go solve it," they'll very faithfully go and solve that. Right. But really, like kind of, of just uh, the the type of colleague employee we look for is, is someone who comes. They have a project at hand, um, whether it's a house or an office or any kind of uh, institutional building. They then, and of course, it, it doesn't happen immediately. It takes time. But our aspiration is for them to to see that and say, okay, based on you know what I know, I can see this being a problem. That will be a problem. Let's solve it. And you know, India. This is this is where the context of India becomes very important because we have challenges here that. Uh, you don't have the same challenges in other countries. So we have climatic challenges. The monsoon for three months things stop, uh, or they go extremely slow. So how does that impact your work plan for the two months before the monsoon? What are you trying to finish? Um, you know, to take a, a practical example, if you're doing a building, people can work inside the building during the monsoon. If the building is not shut, then you're stuck for three months. Yeah. So some you'll have to anticipate that if you have Twenty-five projects going on in an office to think that the quote-unquote boss will handle everything it's impossible right so um, so with people can proactively say okay this is going to be a problem I need to prioritize this um, so that that doesn't happen that's just it's fantastic Um, another another so that's climatic another thing is political uh, the political equation elections throw things haywire hmm. um, before elections a lot of people corporates that have large sums of money they stall on spending um, so again it's it's related this is particular to the, uh, the built environment perhaps but um, new projects would generally not start right before an election hmm. um, so we have to know when to push versus when to wait um, and not push for a project to start and then of course we have the the festival seasons, which is related to a variety of uh, faith systems in India, um, for Holi in Ahmedabad and Gujarat, for one one and a half two months, workers cannot be found. Wow. They go to their they go to their village, uh, whereas in other cities, it's a week or two weeks delay. So you know this is just you have to you have to be very aware of your context, um, and uh, and and that's when we again it helps. When people can anticipate problems that will arise, not because of shortcomings of their 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 own work, but because of the environment around them, yeah. Uh, so it, it it's you have to be highly aware, and we always push people to do that rather than being aware of what your boss is saying, because yeah. that's that's not uh, that's not sufficient.
0: So I love this example of you know anticipating problems as being one way to increase you know, the term we hear a lot is ownership. You know, trying to increase yep. ownership among people. Uh, mm-hmm. Any other ways that you can you can do that get people to really own that project uh, outside of anticipating problems? Yeah, uh,
1: I, you know this is this is one of the things that really uh, kind of impressed me when I started working. Is you know my boss would say, "Okay, you write to the client. A letter goes in your name. Mark me a CC, and uh, but you communicate directly with them." So I found that when people write directly it's it's uh then it becomes theirs. The response comes to them, the response is addressed to them. Um it, it really it uh it has the potential to transform how they think about their role on the project mm. and um and to push them into that position of okay I'm the boss, I'm communicating and then then the actual, like quote-unquote, boss in the office becomes just an assistant, hmm. someone that uh, gives them inputs or critiques them, gives them corrections if they've done something wrong. Um, but but they just in that sense they become a servant of uh, of the quote-unquote junior person who becomes the boss. That's right. the that's the kind of ideal situation, um, and when that happens, it's it's much more fun for the person at the in terms of the hierarchy at the lower level it's more fun for them and it's less stressful for the person at the uh the theoretical top of the hierarchy chain
0: yeah that's a great idea let's uh let's transition away from the business stuff for a second um you know you're you're a recently married guy into an indian family right yes that's right now tell me a little bit about that process uh how did you you know enter into that relationship what's it been like so far Anything you can share? Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, well, wow. so it's it's fantastic. Uh, definitely the best relationship uh, of my life. Um, so you know, Tina and I met about two and a half, uh, three years ago, and yeah, it was it was difficult because we were in different cities. Uh, we were friends for a year, um, but that that first year was actually quite important because not only did I get to To know Tina to some extent and vice versa but I got to meet her parents Hmm. Um, and you know for a full year they would periodically hear of me every two months somehow I would come into the picture either um, if Tina was in Bombay they would hear about me or if I was in Bangalore we would meet um, and just on a very very uh, non-pressure Completely a friendship situation. Uh-huh. Um, so I was this kind of interesting, nice guy who they knew of, um, and then um, and then Tina and I started uh, talking. And before we started dating, uh, we said or wanted to start dating, we said we both agreed we should have uh, your parents' approval. So again, it's it's communication. Um, mm-hmm we approached them before we started dating and said, uh, you know, we would like to, uh, like to officially start dating, would that be okay? And it was, it was, they were completely uh, accepting. And I would like to think part of that is because there was already this, this, uh, this kind of relation. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was, of course, just a purely friendship and Yeah, it was just just uh, I was just I was there. Yeah. Um, so that it helped. I, I didn't come out of the sticks. I wasn't you know just jumped into the scene one day. Um, so there was a comfort level, I think.
0: Yeah. Now, now it's hard to again to imagine a a different version of yourself that's back in the U.S. But hmm. do you think you would have done those same things? You know, um, taking it slowly, uh, approach uh, the parents, those kinds of things, or is that something <laughs> that you feel like India kind of changed you in?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it, that 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 India absolutely had changed me. Mm. Uh, I, I remember in college, whenever I had interest, the last thing I was thinking about was what will their parents say. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it just it, it never crossed one's mind. Um, but here it was it was non negotiable. Yeah. And even when we were talking about it, Tina said, "You know, what if they say no?" And <laughs> my response was we'll deal with it when they say no, <laughs> you know, uh, like we'll see. So it was, it was definitely something we had to do. Um, and her parents really, really genuinely appreciate it. And I think part of the reason they said yes, amongst hopefully others was, you know, if, 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 if our children respect us enough to ask our opinion in this, like, how can we, how can we say no? Um, uh, so it was very honoring for them hmm. To have a say in that Mm -hmm.
0: great Uh, Robert as we kind of close things up here um, I want you to give some some tips to people who are looking for more that long-term relationship with India Uh, yeah you know a lot of people come here just for a few years they're kind of in and out they have some good experiences but there's some people who are really looking to set down roots to to really Mm -hmm. grow here what are just two things you could share with people like that yeah
1: um... You know, these are things I'm I'm learning. Uh, but I think one of the biggest things is is just kind of setting your mind in a in a state of being ready to persevere, hmm. um, because the the challenges are unique. Um, they're not often what you expect them to be. Um, yeah, they're just very unique, and they're different for each person. So they uh, that you can't necessarily prepare for them. So you just have to be ready to persevere, whatever these these very personal challenges will be. Um, and you know, it's it's a bit of a strange word, perseverance. So I don't know. It's it's also a bit vague. But uh, I think a lot of it's just a mindset that it's going to be hard at times. You have to you have to faithfully ride through that hard time. Um, and know that that it will end and things will change, and uh, and and then you have a much richer character after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's one thing, and I I think the second thing is is and this is something Tina has has also kind of uh, enjoyed um, is not living in um, in a bubble in a sense. Uh, we meet a lot of people in Bombay who are uh, from outside of India and they have Indian friends but for the most part they live in uh, in a setting or context that's very similar to where they've come from. Mm-hmm. Um, be it the size of their apartment or uh, just the, 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 the large group of people they're around um, and just breaking out of that. Um, Kind of being open to completely immersing yourself in a different context, uh, in terms of living conditions, in terms of food, um, in terms of how you think. Uh, it's it's being able to break out of the norm for whatever whatever that is for you, um, and it's just a lot of nice discoveries happen there, and it's fun. <laughs> so that's the that's that's kind of one of our uh, models um, per se. So
0: yeah. Great, great. Well, wow. um, Robert, why don't you share a little bit about where people can find you? Where can they connect with you? Other places? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a
1: defunct blog. Um, it's it's not updated for the most part since I got married. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's just been a bit busy. It's Prema Milan, P-R-E-M-A-M-I-L-A-N dot blogspot dot com. Um, so anything pre two thousand fourteen, you'll see there.
0: Yeah, uh, and I will. So two things. One, I want to tell everyone, you need to go check it out first, because it's really, really cool. It's It was really a, an inspiration to me when I was getting started blogging just about different things. And second, I saw some resurgence about some triangle spotting that happened. <laughs> and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go check out Robert's site. So maybe maybe I'll try to update some
1: triangles now. Uh, that's easier to do than writing a lot. So. You just
0: start a separate blog just on triangles. Maybe there like, we go. Yeah.
1: Good. Sounds good. Sounds yeah. good. So there, that's uh, that's always there. And um, Facebook is probably the best way right now. Robert D. Stevens with a Ph.
0: Um, with a Ph.D.? or PhD?
1: Uh, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S. Okay. <laughs> oh, that was a joke. I'm yes, ah, sorry. Sometimes we're funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Simple Superstar, it's, uh, it's a film that I had the opportunity to co-produce with Wilbur Sargunaraj. Um, If you don't know who he is, he, according to Times of India, is India's first YouTube star. Um, But that aside, he is just an incredible human being. Um, He was a huge inspiration in Tina and I getting married, Um, wonderful friend, and uh, a great example and role model for young and old people alike. So if you have a chance, please do go online, YouTube, and and, uh, watch the feature film, Simple Superstar. Um, in addition he has a couple of hundred videos as well that many people are enjoying so uh, please do go and enjoy and write to Wilbur he'll write back I promise you
0: yeah I would definitely recommend if you're going to check it out like block out at least a couple hours one for the feature film and then if you're going to watch some of his other videos they're really 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 well done first class as he says right yeah absolutely completely first class yeah great well great thanks so much Robert it's been a real pleasure talking with you great thanks Neil Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. This has been the Working with India podcast produced by learningindia.in. Please subscribe to the show to get new updates as soon as they're released. And as always, don't do India alone.